Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend we use the proper five readings from your A that gives us Hosea chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6, verse 6, the epistle from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25, and the gospel from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. So we begin with our Old Testament reading from Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 6. Hosea is a minor prophet in the Old Testament, which is based on basically the quantity of his writings. So he's not nearly as long as, for example, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So minor prophet Hosea, who writes to the people of God, both in the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and we'll see both of those mentioned in verse 4 of our text today. And he's writing, typically the range given to him is from 740 until 715 B.C., which puts him as a contemporary to other prophets like Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. So in our text today, it's going to be divided into three separate paragraphs, and really it's divided by speaker Although we might suggest Hosea is the speaker of all of these things, in verse 15 he speaks from the Lord. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6, he's going to be speaking, in essence, on behalf of the people before God, before switching back in verse 4 through 6 to the response that God would give. So all of this is from the Lord, but we have that intercession in the middle. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God is going to return again to his place. From its context, this appears to be God leaving Israel. Israel and Judah both that he's going to leave their midst. That would be the picture of the tabernacle, eventually the temple, that God had promised to dwell in the midst of his people, where he would grant forgiveness through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and also where he would speak to them his word. And so now, to use an American phrase, he's pulling the plug. He's leaving. He's going to return to his place, which would then seem to be a reference perhaps to his heavenly throne. And what this means then is that God's judgment will come upon them. You're either under the Lord's protection or you're not. And they are no longer. So instead of having his favor, they have his judgment. And that will lead to the destruction of Israel in 722 B.C., as well as the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. But, notice, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Until, the powerful little word here, it indicates a different future that God acknowledges as he looks at the situation that, yes, they are unrepentant of their sin. But by turning them over for a time, he knows it will bring about repentance. 
and so he turns them over. Definitely other sections in scripture that match with this. There is the entire book of Judges, which follows this pattern as the people rebel against God. They sin against him. They worship false idols. And he gives them over to oppression. He allows an enemy army, or you could even say raises up an enemy army, to push back against them, to oppress them. And when they are oppressed after a while, a time, they recognize their sin. And they cry out, they call out to the Lord to rescue them, and he sends a deliverer called a judge, a military hero and champion that would rescue them from their enemies. And after that rescue, they endure a period of peace. Until in that peace, they forget about God, and they turn away from him again. This pattern repeats itself across a dozen judges. It is what they expected Jesus to be to rescue them from the Roman oppression, which is not why he came. He came to rescue us from the oppression we face with sin, death, and the devil. And that he did. Thanks be to God. So here God turns them over to their sins, over to their temptations, that they may endure this suffering and sorrow for a time in order that they repent. Notice that, in order that they repent. We see this in the New Testament. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who, in the midst of their Corinthian congregation, has taken his father's wife as his own, and Paul rebukes the church for this, and he says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's a reference to excommunication. Kick him out of the church. Remove him from the church so that he may then suffer for a while. However, that suffering and hope that it would lead to repentance, that he would turn away from his wrongdoing and the sin that he has committed and is continuing to do, he would turn from it and he would be spared. You see, the Lord, and this is Ezekiel 33 and so forth, the Lord does not desire the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their evil ways and live. The Lord knows that this life is but temporary, Given enough days, we die. But the Lord also knows that he will rescue, save, deliver, and grant everlasting life to those who seek him, who trust in him. And so, yes, the Lord works in ways that we would find unusual, in ways that might make us feel uncomfortable. And he does so precisely to call us out of our sin, out of our comfort zone, that we would live forever. If you're working with an ESV, you probably have a subtitle over chapter 6 here then that reads, Israel and Judah are unrepentant. This is again the spot where the text speaker shifts. Hosea is still the speaker, but now seems to be speaking for the people, speaking to the people. And he says, Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, 
that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know Yahweh. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So Hosea begins this with an invitation to all the people of God to return, to repent, to turn away from their idolatry, to turn away from their sin, to return to Yahweh, to trust in him. Verse 1b and verse 1c, these next two clauses, both, and they're, they're clear. He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. It's not a well-received statement by the Christian. It's not language we like to hear about God. But again, this is how he can, does, work. He tears down. He has brought his judgment upon the people of Israel and Judah. That they would see their wickedness and recognize what it brings, separation from God and what that means for them in the long term. And they would repent. And if they repent, what will God do? Heal us. Bind us up. That's a picture to bandaging wounds. This is really the picture of discipline. Imagine as a parent that your child gets into trouble. We don't, we ought not discipline merely out of anger. I can't believe you did that. But we do discipline. Yes, we punish. Because we know if our child continues down that path, we know what it leads to. We have the wisdom to see that. Maybe we've been there ourselves. We know the destruction that it causes. And we don't want them to endure that destruction. And so we bring about a little suffering, whatever that may, may be, however you choose and seek to punish and discipline. We bring about a little suffering to avoid the greater suffering. The Lord brings about a little suffering in order to avoid the greater suffering of hell. A little suffering in this life can mean great things. It can mean destruction. It can mean death. It can mean illness. It can mean who knows what. In these cases, it meant Assyrian and Babylonian army invasions. It even meant the destruction of the holy temple in Jerusalem. Siege, warfare, all kinds of things. But again, these are minor in the big picture. If I were to be arrested, beaten, as we see happen to several of the apostles, that is a minor thing. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it in the moment, but Christ will raise us from death. This, this broken world in which we live now, 
is for but a season. The day comes when the Lord brings this destruction to an end. The day comes when he raises us from the dead and brings us to himself. And that's what we can talk about then with verse 2. Hosea may not have in his mind, as he writes these words from God, he may not have in his mind what we do as Christians, seeing the idea of a third day raising up. We'll come back to that, though. Most likely here, what Hosea is referencing is is probably the destruction of these two kingdoms. That the Lord is tearing them down so that he can then build them up again. Two days, they're going to spend torn down. In this case, a day is a metaphor. It's not a 24-hour window, but it's a a season, however long that would be. The season of 70 years discussed by Jeremiah seems likely to fit with this, that the Lord again allows Babylon to destroy Judah, but after 70 years he raises them up. He brings them out of exile and back to the promised land. He heals them. He restores them as a people. So after two days, he revives us. On the third day, he raises us up. Reviving is partial. So you get the person who has been harmed, beaten, oppressed, to the point where their their body is so exhausted, it has given out. Coma, or even... Uh, fainting from exhaustion, those kinds of pictures. To be revived is that moment where the person wakes up. They're not fully healed, they're not healthy yet, but nor are they still in as dark of a place. And then to be raised up would be the picture of being stood back up on your feet. This really seems to be the picture of Jerusalem being destroyed, but then Babylon being destroyed by Cyrus of Persia, and God using Cyrus to set his people free, to send them back to the promised land and rebuild in 538. So the two-day window of exile. But it's not until 515 that they dedicate the temple to God again? That could be the reference to the third day in this text for raising them up. Because it's the reversing of verse 15 that he would return to his place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek him, and they have. In their exile, they seek God, and he restores them. He raises them up, that we may live before him. So they're back in the promised land, back in Jerusalem, back in front of the temple of God. That really does seem the fitting context. However, As Christians, we can't help but see this verse as a foreshadowing of our salvation in Christ. The third day resurrection. That God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and because he lives, because he has conquered death, the same is true also for you. You live forevermore. You have overcome death in Christ that we may live before him in his paradise forevermore. So for two days, we endure suffering. But on the third day, we rise. 
There's a period of grief, there's a period of suffering, a period of brokenness. But it does not endure forever. It does not have the final say. Verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know Yahweh. And this is really up to this point the problem. Is that they have been seeking to know false gods. They have been seeking to know the works of their own hand. They have been seeking to rely upon themselves for what they need. And so Hosea here, as the prophet who speaks God's word to his people, calls them to repent. Hosea here is calling them back to himself, Yahweh, calling them back to God. To know him, to trust him, and to seek him for the need of the day, rather than turning to, for example, the Egyptian army, or to a false god of the the Moabites, whoever it is. Israel's king tried several alliances. They don't work out. But his going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the shower, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is an illustration from Hosea of certainty. You know the spring rain comes. It comes every year. We have our saying in, in America these days of, April showers bring May flowers. We trust it's going to come. Why? Because it has shown itself to do so. So Hosea speaks of God. We can trust he will come. He will provide for us. Why? He always has. He has not failed his people. And his going out is as sure as the dawn. His going out to work. This is the reversal of the seventh day, where God is created in six days. He takes the seventh day to rest. And then on the eighth day, he returns to work. God hasn't been resting since day seven. He's been working ever since to continue creating, to continue providing, to care for this, his creation. And for you and for me as his people, God cares and provides. His going out, so his It's the image of the man stepping out of the house in the morning to go work the field so that he can provide for his family. Or the image of the soldier stepping out of the city gates in the spring at the time when kings go off to war to go and fight to protect his neighbor. The Lord fights for you. The Lord provides for you. This is the picture of the text. And yet... God knows that they will not yet repent. And so he grieves as he responds in verse 4. So let's finish this text. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, O Judah? Ephraim here, as one of the northern tribes, represents all of Israel. And Judah, as one of the southern tribes, represents 
Judah. Why Ephraim? This isn't the only instance. It gets used this way multiple times in the Old Testament to represent the entire northern kingdom. Perhaps it's because of Shiloh, which is one of its cities, and it housed the tabernacle of God for centuries when they first entered the Promised Land, until David eventually brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. It might have a connection. But the Lord laments. He grieves this sinful people who are not repentant. What shall I do with you? And then he reflects that lack of their repentance, that their love is like a morning cloud, like dew that goes early away. Their love doesn't last. A morning cloud disappears quickly. Dew comes and then it's gone. So it is with the repentance of man. We return to God for a moment, and then we quickly return to our sins. This is the picture the Lord sees, and if we're honest with ourselves, it is what we do too. How many of us have come to church on Sunday morning? confessed our sin, and before the church service has even ended, have already repeated that sin in thought, if not word or deed. Or if not, while the church service is still going, before the day is out. Maybe all of us have done that. Many of us, maybe even weekly, do that kind of a thing. We are weak. And so the Lord fairly asks, What shall I do with you? So what shall he do with them? He answers, verse 5, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. Hewn. That is to cut into pieces. By the prophets. Now this doesn't mean Hosea is literally working with swords and knives and chopping people up. That's... Not at all the case. You do see that once in Scripture in the book of Judges, and that's not a good example or an illustration of anything to be repeated. It happens because there was no king over the people of God, and they did whatever was right in their own eyes. And war comes from it. Now this is the picture of God's word, that he sends his word in the mouth of the prophet, and when the prophet preaches and proclaims this word of God, it kills us. God's word kills sinners. This is the law. That we were to seek God earnestly. And we didn't. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. So if verse 5 didn't start out clear enough with the prophet... God seems to specify it a little bit more. His word kills. He brings destruction that he may heal. It's going to have a lot of connection to what we see with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9 as Jesus speaks to them in the text today. He brings destruction that he may heal. Keep that one in mind.
judgment goes forth as the light. So just as Hosea's picture in verse 3 of the certainty of God doing things just like spring rain, God uses that same kind of idea. Just as certain as light goes out every single day, so is God's judgment. It will go out. And again, it tears us down in order that he may heal us. This then brings us to the conclusion of the Hosea reading. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This will be directly connected to the Matthew 9 text because Jesus will quote it. We'll talk more about his quote when we get there. But for now, let's take a look at this in its context. God desires steadfast love. The Hebrew word hesed, meaning steadfast love, as ESV likes to put it, covenant faithfulness, mercy, loyalty, those kinds of things. A really hard word to do a one-for-one English translation of. But I think in this case, using an illustration from our own marriages would be fitting to illustrate God's point. Would you rather your spouse commit adultery against you and then come before you pleading for your forgiveness? Or would you rather your spouse be faithful and never commit adultery against you? I can't say everyone, because there are some dark and perverted marriages in this land. But I would guess that almost everyone would choose that latter option, that they would rather their spouse simply have been faithful from the beginning. God desires us to be faithful rather than sacrifice. He would rather have us know him, again, the people were busy knowing foreign gods, that we would turn to him, trust in him, than that we would have to bring burnt offerings for forgiveness. It's not that the second group of things is wrong. God himself is the one who commanded sacrifice and burnt offerings. It is that the first is better. Just as if our spouse did commit adultery, we would want them to come to us, confess their sin, and seek reconciliation. That's still a good thing. But God would first have us actually do what he's given us to do, he would first have us love and trust in him above all things. Now, it is worth pointing out as a way to end our conversation on Hosea that God actually does both of the things in 6a. He gives us his steadfast love, loving us unconditionally, being completely faithful to the covenant that he made with us, even though we aren't. But at the same time, He also sacrifices for us, giving up his very own body and blood, laying down his own life out of that great love that he has for us. 
Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ and what he has done on Good Friday and Easter morning. Now, our epistle reading for this weekend is from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. Thus, it is from the Apostle Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Rome, which includes both Jews and Gentiles, about essentially how we're saved. That salvation is a gift, and this text is going to cover that today as well. Divided into two paragraphs, so first we take verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The promise. Verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Let's go to that promise. Genesis chapter 17, and we just read those verses for you to ponder and consider as its context to help us understand our Romans passage today. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession." and I will be their God. Now, you can read this elsewhere too. Genesis 15 includes the promise God makes to Abraham. Genesis 12 includes part of the promise originally made to Abraham. But you get the basic picture here. God has indeed promised Abraham that he would become the father of many nations, which is why I chose to use the Genesis 17 text. It's what Abraham's name means. Av is Hebrew for father, and then Am at the end is the word for nation. So you have got the, the raw part in the middle that gives you the idea of the multitude, many, father of many nations. Whereas Abram, before, father of Ram, which gave it the meaning of exalted, so an exalted father. So God changed his name for the, the reminder to Abraham day in and day out. Whenever anybody was talking to him or whenever he introduced himself to somebody, that God had made him this promise and that God would keep this promise. And what's the promise? His offspring inherit the earth. Now, again, as Christians, we can look at that so much more in detail as we can think of paradise that is to come, that you and I are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, that we will reign with him over the new heaven and the new earth forever. We are heirs of the world. 
the new creation. But note for Abraham here that this inheritance of his and for his offspring is not something that comes through the law. It is not dependent upon Abraham's goodness. It is not dependent upon Abraham doing the right works all the time. Instead, Paul says it comes through the righteousness of faith. Faith. And so as Lutherans, you will often hear us talk about how faith is, is the means of, of which we receive. And so you'll hear, I don't know, analogies like a baseball glove or something like that, uh, where you put the glove on and then the gifts are sent to you, the ball comes your way, you catch it, the glove, the faith receives. I don't know if the analogies are never perfect, but faith receives. That's the picture you'll often hear. It's not through our works. God is going to give this to us as a gift. This gets us to verse 14. For if it was the adherents of the law who were to be heirs, faith is null, promise void. That makes sense, right? If, if you were part of Abraham's family by your good deeds, then it no longer depends on faith. If you're receiving this gift because of your work, and then it's actually not a gift anymore, it's payment. But it's no longer based on a promise, it's based on your work. The promise is eliminated in that situation. Made void, like you write void on a check and it's no good anymore. Empty. We're not... heirs of the world like Abraham because of strong works that we do. We're, we're heirs of the world by trusting in the promise, by clinging to his word. This is what Paul will go on to talk about more in Romans chapter 9, where he will say this very clearly. I'll start at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul recognizes that in Abraham's life, Abraham will take the promise of God of him being this heir of the world, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And he and Sarah grow impatient. They can't wait for God to do it. They try to do it their own way. So he marries Hagar, Sarah's servant. And together they have a son by the name of Ishmael. But now it's about their works. And God comes to him and tells him, no, not this way. And God makes the promise that even though, yes, Sarah is old and Abraham is old, it will be from her that he will provide a son. And through that son, God will keep his promise. So Abraham and Sarah try to do it their own way. God says, no, it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. 
And this is the way it is for us even to this day. It doesn't depend on you. For we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works so that no man may boast. It is a gift of God. It's a gift. He gives it. He won it. You don't have to do anything to earn salvation. That's not to say you don't have to do anything, like period. But when it comes to salvation, you don't have to do anything, period. Hopefully that made sense. Right? The distinction. Yes, we do good works. As Christians, we're called to do them. God prepared them in advance that we would walk in them. He gave us neighbors to love. And they need us to care for them. They, in some ways, become dependent on that. As we depend on one another in a community both as a a secular community, but also within the church. We depend on one another. We're here to do good works, to love each other. But when it comes to salvation, nah, throw works out the window, they don't matter. So do them, yes, but not to be saved. Hopefully you're tracking, hopefully that makes sense. This is what Paul's making the case for. Now we do have... That odd last line of this paragraph of verse 15, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's consider that word transgression to help us understand the phrase. Trans means beyond, and gress is an old uh, word giving us the idea of walking, going, stepping. So the picture of this word transgression is to go beyond to walk beyond. So you have a fence, a boundary, an enclosure, and to transgress that is to go beyond it. The law is the border. If there's no border, if there's no fence, you can't transgress it. You can't go beyond it. But there has never not been a fence. Even in the Garden of Eden, there's a fence. You may eat of any tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Even that, they transgress, they go beyond, they walk beyond what God has given. And so the law brings wrath because where transgression then occurs, there's discipline, there's punishment, there's even judgment. Our second paragraph, verses 16 through 25, the rest of our text. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, 
But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Makes perfect sense, right? I mean, Paul's sentences can be so deep, so complex, so much to untangle. It depends on faith. What depends on faith? The promise that we would be heirs of the world. It's not by our doing, but it's on faith. It's a promise. It rests on grace. That is gift. And because it's a gift, it can be guaranteed to all. If you have a whole bunch of people and it depends on them, how many of them are going to succeed in whatever the thing is? I mean, if it's passing a test, if it's... uh, building something, whatever it is you're wanting to make this crowd of people do, how many of them are going to do it? How many of them can actually live up to whatever the expectation is, even if it's a low one? You can't guarantee all of them. But if it's a gift, if it comes from outside of them, then you can. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on my human weaknesses. It doesn't depend on my brokenness to come through in the moment and shine forth bright and strong. It rests on grace. Not just to the one who keeps the law. It's not wrong to try to keep the law, by the way. It's God's good will for his people. It's good not to kill other people. Right? I think we can agree on that, by and large. It's for them. And it's for the one who has faith. Now, is that a Jew-Gentile distinction? I'm not so sure. Uh, the the God-fearing Gentiles, as they're sometimes called, called in the New Testament, they have come in and they are trying to adhere to the law also. This is a reference to the church, to the one who has that faith, who is a child of God by promise. Abraham is the father of us all, both Jew and Gentile alike as he's writing to the church in Rome, which consists of both. Fulfilling the promise, I have made you the father of many nations, from our Genesis reading, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. In the presence of, that is, God is witness. Abraham was in God's presence. God made a promise. God witnessed to the promise, and God kept it. And what do we know about this God? Well, he's the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What does Paul have in mind with giving life to the dead? Old Testament resurrection accounts? There are a few. Or New Testament resurrection accounts. Surely Paul has heard of Lazarus. Or is Paul looking to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, raised by the Father from the dead? Or is it a collection of all of it, including the last day, that God can do this thing that seems impossible? Here he's about to talk about what seemed impossible in Abraham's day, that a man who's 100 years old and his wife, roughly 90, uh, that they could have a child. That seemed impossible. 
and yet it happened. God can do what seems impossible. And that is true of the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't seem possible. If you tell your neighbor today that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and they're not a Christian, they're probably going to... Well, it depends on the personality, whether they'll laugh in your face or just kind of mock the idea or say that nobody rises from the dead. That's the world's reaction. But he is God. He is the one who spoke into existence things that did not exist. That's a reference to all of this. If God can say, let there be light and there is light, what can't he do? Paul here is displaying God's all-powerful nature. He has the power to impart change. And he can do so simply by speaking, which is incredible. In hope, he believed against hope. an odd phrase, I think, in English for us, isn't it? It pits hope against hope. Maybe this would be the certain hope of the Christian versus the hope of the world. The world's hope is empty. It's a a guess. I, I hope my favorite football team has a good season. I don't know if they will or not. There's no certainty in that. They might. They might win it all, or they might be the worst in the whole league tear it all down, start all over the next year. There's no guarantee. But the biblical hope, the Christian's hope, is a guarantee because it's based not in things unknown, it's based in what we know, which is God's faithfulness. And thus it is by faith we trust. We cling to the promises that God makes, as Abraham did. And that's the point he's going to go on with here. That he believed, just as God told him, he would become the father of many nations. Genesis 15, verse 5, quoted here, So shall your offspring be, that Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Even today, we'd look at that and say, yeah, that's true. That at that point in life, there aren't many days yet ahead of you. And so Abraham did not see his own flesh at this point. That's why another reason why Genesis 17 might be better than 15, because it's in between that Sarah and Abraham tried to do this thing themselves. But years pass. Ishmael's a teenager by the time this son Isaac will be born. So chapter 17, Abraham already being 99 years old, God makes the promise to him again. And, and this time Abraham... <laughs> Abraham gives up in his own efforts to do it. He just trusts. He trusts God will provide. And he does. So in spite of being so old, in spite of his wife being barren and never having given birth, and now she's old, Abraham trusted God. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise. Doubts come. Which of us Christians has not had a doubt at some point or another? They come, and yet, the promise is not changed. The promise does not waver whatsoever. And so cling, hold tight. That's the the marriage word from Genesis chapter 2, devak, which is Hebrew for stick or cling to. Don't let go. 
I know that sounds like a work. It sounds like an action to be done. But this is what faith is. Faith is trust. I trust that God will keep his promise. God said he would raise me from the dead. I believe it. I trust him. I take him at his word. Not actively doing anything in that regard. But I've received the promise and I hope in it. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So even though it doesn't make sense, even though he doesn't know how it's going to work out, he glorifies God. He, he praises God. He lifts God up. He tells others. I mean, imagine, right? Abraham talking to Sarah about this promise. Imagine Abraham having to go around to his community and tell the other people in his household, all those 318 men, whoever many are left after they've rescued Lot years before. Genesis 14 on that one. He's telling them all, my name is now Abraham. God said it means I'll be the father of many nations. God said he'll give me a son even in my old age. Right? He'd have to tell people. He's proclaiming. He's giving glory to God. He's showing that God is good and that God is all-powerful, that God can do what he says. He can even call into existence things that don't exist. He can do this too. That's faith. It's a trust and a promise. He's fully convinced God is able to do it. And so it's counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15 verse 6. Righteousness not as in the idea that I must be perfect. Although there's, again, nothing wrong with seeking to keep the law of God. But we cannot be saved by that. So we are righteous by faith. We are perfect in the eyes of God by faith because that faith receives the gifts Christ gives, which includes forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and so forth. It was counted to him. It's not just written for Abraham's sake, but ours also, because it is also counted to us. We are counted righteous by faith. Faith in what? Oh, him who raised Jesus from the dead. God the Father who gave life to his Son. And what about this Jesus? Well, that he was delivered up for our trespasses, sins. And he was raised for our justification. So Jesus dies on the cross to forgive our sins. He rises again to complete that process of making us right with God. That we can be raised. That we can live forever. This is a gift. We don't earn it. It's simply given. Thanks be to God. Lastly, we now come to the gospel text, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus had gone back to Capernaum, and he had healed a paralytic. And that's the context you can look at in verses 1 through 8 there, but that begins our verse 9 as Jesus passed on from there. So he's leaving Capernaum in a different direction, and that starts our text. So here's verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Jesus leaves Capernaum, runs into Matthew sitting at a tax booth. What's this a reference to? Well, you've got two different kinds of tax. You have a tax that the government is charging. We also had a temple tax at the time. With the temple tax, it's all within Jerusalem. It's all within the Jews, and so you have one Jew collecting money from other Jewish men in order that the temple would be cared for. 
that one is not the same kind of job as the Jew who works for the Romans collecting money from the Jews to send off to Rome. Those are the despised class, and that's what you're going to have reflected here in verse 10. Matthew's going to be a part of this as well. So we'll cover that more when we get to that. But for the moment, just recognizing, here's Matthew, a Jewish man who's basically sold out to the Romans. Jesus calls him to follow him. And he does. Matthew doesn't spend any more time talking about his calling. He doesn't spend any more time really detailing himself. He doesn't even note to us that this next paragraph is going to happen in his house. Although we get this detail from Luke's gospel. Luke calls him Levi, by the way, same man. So Luke 5:27. after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. Verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So, again, Matthew doesn't even bother to focus on that. This is in his house that these next things happen. Matthew is so excited he invites Jesus to dinner. Who else comes to this dinner? Well, the, the only friends Matthew can have. As somebody who's sold himself out, again, that's the picture here, he's, he's working for Rome, the oppressor, the enemy, that they expect the Messiah who will eventually come, they're not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah here, the Pharisees certainly don't, but whenever this Messiah comes, he's going to crush Rome, he's going to give us our country back, we'll be Israel again, we'll be our own nation again. How can you, a Jew, who should be looking forward to the Messiah coming and saving us, how can you be working for Rome? How can you work for the enemy? There was a great hatred of these people. That's not even to get into the idea that maybe they were thieves. I'm not even going to go as far as I often hear commentators go and talk about the theft the idea that the Romans said, collect this much, and then they just told the people, I'm supposed to collect this much, and they kept the extra for themselves. Did they? Maybe. Maybe some of them did. Would they all? Don't know that. But the real issue at heart is that they're traitors. That's the way they're viewed. And so here, as they come into Matthew's house, and Jesus reclines at table, who's there? But other tax collectors and sinners, groups that the Pharisees have isolated as particularly evil people. And so the rest of the Jews have nothing to do with these. So where are they going to go for community? Well, they've been outsided. They're going to hang out with each other. So as Matthew throws this little celebration of having found Jesus, well, Jesus having found him and called him. As Matthew throws this party, who does he invite? He invites who he knows. And these two outside groups come. And then, following Jesus, the Pharisees, who are always looking for a reason to trap him in something. I don't think I've read the text yet, though. Let me read verses 10 through 13 here. 
And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, so we've already dug through verse 10. Other than noting that they reclined at table. Now, that's not to say that they were in the lazy boy recliners. They reclined. They laid on a side. So they laid on their right side, perhaps, or their left. I'm not sure. But picture laying on your right side and using your right hand to prop up your head. Right? Elbow on the ground, hand against your face or under your chin or however, and then you reach out with the other hand to grab the food to eat. This is the picture of eating in most of the ancient world, especially in this culture around scripture. So if you're not familiar with that one, uh, you'll see that word reclining and food together often. So the Pharisees see it. And you can sense an anger here. It's not really mentioned in the text. We just get their question. And who are they asking? They don't ask Jesus. They ask the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's disdain, again, for these two groups of people who are outside of Jewish life. If he's supposed to be the Jewish Savior, why is he with them? He shouldn't be with them. He should be with us. It's the kind of picture that you get from this question. The disciples... As far as we can tell, they don't have an answer. But instead, it is Jesus who responds because he hears it. He also knows their hearts. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. A very straightforward, simple analogy. If you're well, you don't go to the doctor. You just keep plugging along. You take every day as it comes. But if you're pretty sick, you're going to the doctor often. Doctors help people who are sick. That's the picture. Who are the sick ones? Well, that's a bit what the rest of this text might be calling us to pay attention to. Go and learn what this means. Go study God's word. See the invitation. Because he quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which was part of our Old Testament reading. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Now, you'll notice that it's not word for word from Hosea 6 verse 6. And the reason for that is language barriers. By the time Jesus is doing his ministry at the start of the New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament is not the normal text. The Hebrew Old Testament has already been translated by that time into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. And this Greek text is then the one that Jesus is going to quote from. So the Hebrew word, I desire, here mercy in English, the Hebrew word in Hosea 6.6 is hesed, which is always a difficult word. Steadfast love is ESV's favorite way to translate it. Covenant faithfulness is the way I was talking about it in the reading before. Loyalty, uh, one's obligation to their community. There's lots of ways to talk about this word. 
But when it got translated into Greek, it was translated as eleos, which is the Greek word for mercy. So what is Jesus inviting them to? If it's eleos, mercy, he's calling the Pharisees to repent because they're not showing mercy. Mercy is when you don't give people what they deserve. Have mercy upon these tax collectors. Have mercy upon these sinners. Yes, they deserve punishment. Yes, they've done evil things. Have mercy. Have compassion upon them. Rather than focusing on their ongoing need to obey everything you tell them to do, show that mercy. So that is a call to repent, to treat others in a loving way. If we go back to the Hebrew word hesed, it's a little bit more perhaps of a call for them to be faithful to God themselves. Now that was the original context of Hosea 6. God would rather us be faithful to him and not have to then sacrifice to make up for what we've done wrong. So Pharisees, you too need to repent rather than focusing on keeping all these laws that you've made for yourselves. A couple of different ways to consider this. Either way, Jesus is calling the Pharisees to repent. Perhaps both ways can be truly considered at the same time. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we know from Romans chapter 3 that there is no one righteous, no, not one. But instead, Jesus came to call sinners, which isn't the same as this sinners group identified in this paragraph, but instead it's all of us, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that Jesus has come to call all of us to repentance. He's come to forgive all of our sins of the sinner, the tax collector, and the Pharisee alike. He is calling them. He's invited them to read God's word, to remember the scriptures they have memorized, perhaps. He's inviting them to repent, to trust in him, to love their neighbor. So there's our interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in the house of Matthew, just after Matthew's been called to follow Christ. Come.